What's your problem? What's your solution? This is an interview series about making the world a better place. The transition to clean renewable energy is the easy part of the path towards reversing global warming. The bigger challenge is to restore biodiversity as the foundation for all life on the planet. Johan Rockström is a scientist who pioneers the strategy of a safe operating space for humanity. Rockström was the executive director of the Stockholm Resilience Center and currently serves as the joint director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. Welcome to Camp Solutions. A lot of your work is focused on planetary boundaries to create a safe operating space for humanity. Mm. So, can you explain what, what that means? Mm. The planetary boundaries um, originates from, from three strands of, of scientific inquiries. I mean, one is the whole Earth system science, understanding that planet Earth is a, is a tightly interconnected, self-regulating complex system where the biosphere and the climate system and the stratosphere and the hydrosphere, oceans, heat dynamics are interconnected and regulates the planet. The second one is that we have, have 30 years of advancements showing that you know, when, when, when you change things in nature, they have resilience to withstand and dampen up to a certain point until they cross tipping points and can abruptly shift and start self-amplifying in a completely new direction. Yeah. But the third and fundamental uh, kind of key insight is that we've entered a whole new geological epoch, that we're now in the Anthropocene, we're now the, we as humans are now the major driving force of change on planet Earth. And if you combine these three together, that we now are the global force, that you cannot exclude tipping points, and that fundamentally the Earth system is interconnected, that leads to, to the big question, what are the processes that keeps the planet stable? Mm -hmm. And can we scientifically identify the processes? But not only that, can we quantify boundaries within which we have a safe space, meaning that the planet has a very high likelihood of remaining stable, supporting humanity, but beyond which we risk crossing tipping points and triggering self-amplified changes that could actually push the whole planet into a direction that cannot support humanity. There you have the planetary boundary framework. So the concept of boundaries is not something that a lot of people like. I mean, people feel restricted then, but maybe that's exactly what the message is. Well, you know, when you're out driving at night on the highway and uh, you have uh, snow or fog and you have a lot of traffic and it's a very, very mountainous area with escarpments. You're quite glad that you have a guardrail mm -hmm. with some reflections that enables to guide you along your journey. The boundaries is just that. It's, it's, a, it's the guardrail that can guide us to remain on the safe side of danger. And it's not a, a limit in any way because it's a natural scientific analysis of the biophysical guardrail for a safe space. But you know, what you and I do inside that safe space is completely up to us. If we want to be prosperous, if we want to be equitable, if we can be inventive enough to have really good lives for all people within safe operating space is choice that we humans make. But to have guardrails or what I would call today science-based targets for our ability to remain 
you know, safely within a stable Earth system is something that I would call finally science is providing that piece of evidence. Because isn't it quite scary that we for thousands of years have basically had, you know, like as if we've just been driving with, with, with our eyes closed, not knowing at all where mm -hmm. we're heading. We've just assumed all the time that the human world that is so small and the planet is so big that we can, it's just impossible to think of us having any impact at the global scale. So it worked up until just 20, 25 years ago yeah. to, to have world development without planetary boundaries. Because up until that time, just 25, 30 years ago, we were still a relatively small world on a big, big planet. I mean, we had not loaded too much greenhouse gases in the atmosphere yet. Mm -hmm. We had not emptied too much of the oceans on fish yet. We had not cut down too much of the rainforests yet. But today, we've reached what science increasingly calls the saturation point. Within that focus on planetary boundaries, words as resilience and obviously sustainability come up. Mm. It seems that these words reflect um, a focus on preservation, keeping what we have. But don't we also need to regenerate and, and basically build new or help build new ecosystems and new biodiversity. Mm. No, I, I agree with you that uh, we need to recognize regenerative economic development at this point of our pressures on the planet. Uh, you should recognize that when, when we defined the planetary boundaries framework, we of course had to you know, decide what is the, the desired state of the planet mm. to support us. And um, we have, uh, based on, on all the paleoclimatic research we have, come to the conclusion that the Holocene, the, the last 12,000 years since we left the last ice age, is, is the Garden of Eden, is the only state we know for certain can support humanity. But we are very careful in the planet boundary science to say that our task is to stay within the safe operating space of a Holocene-like state, uh -huh. Holocene-like state, because we have changed things so much. We have converted 50% of all terrestrial ecosystems into agriculture. We have reshaped the oceans. We have you know, loaded the atmosphere with so much climate forcing. So the dice is loaded, the heat in the oceans is extraordinary, the ice melt. So therefore, our chance to kind of navigate a, a, a future that can support humanity requires that, that we recognize that we sit in the driving seat, but then also play the role as being in the driving seat. So we need to become you know, planetary stewards, which, which actually requires that, yes, we can build our own resilience as well. Not only the social resilience in terms of human capacities through you know, insurance systems and knowledge base and agency, but also you could call it a form of um, uh, light geoengineering, actually. How, how do we manage our biosphere in a way that it helps us to be more regenerative and thereby also more resilient to deal with uh, the inevitable rise in shocks and stress, for example, that we will start, that we already started to experience from, from just one degree Celsius warming we see so far. But, you know, we're, we're committed towards reaching at least 1.5 degrees Celsius. So it requires from us not only to adapt, I mean, to cope, but also to be smart in terms of our investments in resilience so that we can, you know, have, have good chances of, of handling that future. 
And what could that be, for example? Well, it, it may be that we have to be very clever in, in how we secure not only the remaining natural ecosystems on, on land, but also how we totally transform agriculture so that it becomes a major carbon sink, that we have much more biodiversity and much more, let's say, living landscapes that is a form of regenerative food system that both dampens climate impacts, but is also able to be much, much stronger when we get hit by droughts and floods and heat waves. We know that the single largest sector that is causing emission of greenhouse gases is the food system. Up to 24% of our emission of greenhouse gases originates from deforestation related to agriculture and emissions from food production. But we also know that the food system is the single largest cause behind loss of biodiversity, the single large consumer of fresh water, the single largest cause behind eutrophication, overloading of nitrogen and phosphorus, and a major user and thereby polluter in terms of chemicals. So fundamentally speaking, if you want to stay within planetary boundaries, you need a transformation to sustainable food systems. Now, that, that is nothing less than an agricultural revolution. 1.5 degrees Celsius is the climate boundary, in fact. Which, by the way, is what we showed already in 2009, mm -hmm. when we published the first planetary boundary paper. Yeah. We suggested that 1.5 degrees Celsius was the boundary. Now, in all those scenarios in the IPCC, they show that, yes, we need to bend the global curve of emissions from fossil fuels by 2020, in one year's time, and then essentially go down to zero emissions by 2050. So that is a tremendous decarbonization of the energy system in the world. But then when you look carefully in all these scenarios, they assume that agriculture will go from source to sink within 30 years, meaning that all farming systems in the world will shift from being a major emitter of greenhouse gases to being a major sink and absorber of greenhouse gases. This is, this is an agricultural revolution. Now, is this possible? I would argue that yes, it is. That's quite exciting actually, or it's incredibly <laughs> important because we, we have the technologies and we know how that can happen. We have, there's a paper quite recently, a scientific paper led by Jules Pretty, one of the leading scholars on sustainable intensification, showing that, you know, something like 25-30% of, of farmers in the world are adopting different practices that we can call sustainable intensification. That is from uh, soil tillage to water management to crop rotations to how uh, the whole value chain from planting to, um, well, processing is handled. And I would argue that one of the most exciting parts, uh, let's say if you look for one kind of solution there, is to transition from plowing to conservation tillage. Yes. So, so basically stop, stop turning the soil, which is one of the most fundamental cornerstones of conventional agriculture. I mean, that yes. was basically what took us out from slash and burn 5,000 years ago. And, and to start really learning from nature by keeping carbon and organic matter in the soil by having what you could call uh, different farming systems that, that are, are guided by the principle of minimum disturbance. And do we have the same kind, do we see the same kind of yields there? Well, it, it differs a bit from uh, different experiments around the world, um, but in short, the answer is yes, the yields can reach the same level. Um, 
the challenges to deal with nutrients and to deal with weeds in particular in an efficient way. But you have, for example, one of the most exciting practices in, in rain-fed tropical savanna systems, for example, is if you abandon plowing, which leads to tremendous erosion and loss of water and, and loss of carbon in, in tropical savanna regions, and instead you adopt conservation tillage, which is based on, on subsoiling, which is you don't stop tilling entirely, but instead of just turning the soil everywhere, mm -hmm. you just go in exactly in the lines where you're planting your, your maize or your wheat, yeah. and you just go in with a knife, uh, so-called subsoil, and just open up. So you get a, a deep crack exactly where you're planting your seeds so that all the water can infiltrate there. So you don't turn the soil, so all the carbon remains, so you don't expose it to the sun. And then you just open a little, little slice where you put all your seed, and then the farmers very quickly get quite excited by the fact that this is precision agriculture. Again, the challenge is often how to deal with weeds. And um, one way of doing that is, of course, with herbicides, which is a negative in terms of sustainability and also economically challenging for many small-scale farmers. But, but we've shown in experiments in, in East Africa, for example, that you can handle this through mechanic, uh, mechanical uh, weeding as well. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., in the order of 40% of farmers there, we, we rarely speak about this, almost 40% of agriculture is different forms of conservation tillage. The reason why it's, it's going to scale in the U.S. is largely because uh, saving money, yeah. because you use less diesel, and it's a way of avoiding uh, wind-borne erosion, because once you turn the soils, you get, uh, in, in dry periods, a lot of loss of topsoil. So there's something exciting here, and, and what we've learned is that if you combine that, that let's say, uh, soil management practice which is, again, learning from nature with minimum disturbance, combined with much better crop rotations, uh, getting more legumes, uh, nitrogen-fixating crops. Uh, you can actually create landscape management principles that are you know, both regenerative in terms of closing loops on nitrogen, phosphorus, mm -hmm. water, carbon, but also creating better resilience of the system. Changing the way we produce food on the on farms and agriculture is, is one thing. It would mean that you and I will never drink coffee, tea, we wouldn't have orange juice. I mean, you can go, there's a long list of things that we will take out of our lives if we would lead in our lives in truly local economy. So where do we find a way to keep things that we want to keep, whereas we also want to recreate local economies because that's healthier for the planet? The, the, the full-scale globalized economy that, that doesn't take any sustainability or, or moral, for that matter, mm -hmm. preoccupations on, on, on labor, etc., is not where we want to head. But on the other hand, I I'm, don't think that purely isolated local economies either is the way we want to move forward. And the reason is the following, that I'm, I'm totally convinced today that we have unfortunately in the, let's say, in the environmental movement and in environmental science and, and us propagating sustainable development made quite some major mistakes over the past 50 years because we have taken the sustainability agenda and parked it as an environmental question and talked of it primarily as a question of willingness to pay and, and the degree of sacrifice we must 
make in order to save the planet or yeah. take care of the environment. Yeah. And as long as we um, focus our story in that way, that you have a responsibility, it's a moral duty, it's a question of reducing or changing or, or backing off from, from different life principles, that has shown empirically can only reach something like 10-15% of a population. Apart from combining it with regulatory measures at the global level, like a price on carbon, we need to really come across with a story that says sustainability is, is the attractive pathway for better lives. It is, it is not giving up on all the oranges, bananas and flights, but it certainly is not eating as much orange and bananas and flying as today. So there is a, a recalibration to be made. Mm -hmm. And I think therefore there is a kind of a midway where, where definitely local economies is, is one of the most important steps to also find regenerative, yes. sustainable food systems or consumption patterns for that matter. But I, I don't think we should kind of close the door and throw the key from, from our modern interconnected world either. So there's a... It's a balance. I think it's a balance. And sometimes, of course, that balance is... I mean, what we try to achieve works in many ways in the same direction. Yes. Like, for instance, when you talk about... You already spoke about it. If you talk about diets, uh, plant-based diets are also... I mean, they're good for the planet, but they're yes. also good for human bodies, much better than, than what we eat today for most exactly. people. I think, I think food can be one of the breakthrough points for humanity to show, oh my God, sustainability is the path for better health and even better economy, by the way. Mm -hmm. And we can save more of our nature and we can have better air. So you have so many win-wins here. So, of course, moving towards a more healthy diet is the modern way of living. It's the, it's the, it's the coolest way of living. It's kind mm -hmm. of the step into the future because... I think as, as long as we portray sustainability as, as uh, wrongly, but if it, if it even can be suspected of being a retro movement rather than a forward movement, I think we will never be able to really succeed. Another interesting uh, solution I think that you've been talking about is that when people talk about forests today, we, we think we need to maintain each tree, each forest, because it's, it's where the carbon sinks are, it's, it's, it's nature, you know, there's no need to cut down trees, arguably. Right. That, uh, that should be the ultimate goal. However, you have a, another vision. What, what do you propose? Well, I, I think to start with, uh, we have task one is to maintain the the remaining natural forest systems that we have on planet Earth. I mean, that is absolutely fundamental. The, the, the three remaining rainforests in the Amazon, in Congo and Indonesia, the temperate forest belt and the boreal forests, these three systems we know now from Earth system science are fundamental to remain in a safe operating space within planetary boundaries. And it's not only because of carbon sinks, it's also because they're fundamental habitats for biodiversity. Yes. And they're also fundamental in the whole recycling of moisture and oxygen generation. So these are the lungs and, and, and the water generators and the climate regulators on planet Earth. So that, that is a fundamental step one. But then, of course, we come back to what we discussed earlier about isn't it so that we in the Anthropocene sit in the driving seat, we are now 
basically conducting the world's largest experiment on planet Earth, but we're also fundamentally the cooks in the kitchen. We're the ones in charge. Mm -hmm. So then you have to be in charge also of how we handle, uh, you know, forest systems um, that we can, for example, uh, use biological carbon and capture in a, in a much more efficient way. For example, if we now start transitioning from concrete in buildings to really start building at scale with wood, to begin with, cement is one of the single largest causes. I mean, it generates carbon dioxide yes. emissions in, in the very cement generating process. Well, the only real, fundamentally real carbon sinks with trees is if you lock it in, for example, in structure. Because otherwise, fundamentally, in the end, it will be oxidized and, and, and return the carbon back into the atmosphere. Because also water use and biodiversity and land use have to be guiding principles. Yeah. So that we can get a, and that, that's a huge challenge for us because we tend to silo things, unfortunately. But, but if we can take a systems perspective, I'm totally convinced that forests can become and continue being important for, for both biofuels, heat, and carbon sinks, and construction materials in a multitude of ways. I'm going to ask you two questions, and, and you, know, you may have the same answer to both questions, and maybe not, I'm, I'm wondering. What is your favorite climate solution? And what is the most important climate solution? Well, my favorite climate solution is very simple. Put uh, an end date on coal. And, and let's now stop all investments in coal. I mean, that is the kind of the, the number one. And it's the most important. And it is, uh, you know, almost a make it or break it for humanity uh, in the future. So uh, that's the most important. And then my favorite, mm -hmm. uh, yes, I agree with you that um, because it's so important, it might rapidly become the most favorite one. But I would actually say that my, my favorite is probably putting an end date on the combustion engine. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I like that because it's, uh, it is something that uh, really communicates, uh, it kind of hits you a bit in the stomach what are you talking about? If we ban combustion are engines, are we going to yes. ban combustion yeah. engines? Yeah. But then it, it rapidly you start thinking, oh my God, isn't that quite an exciting challenge for the engineers? Isn't that perhaps the way for the car industry to make money in the future? Isn't that a fantastic move right into what we normally just some years back saw only on movie, basically? So I think putting a, a dead end like a like a and my 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 dream would be. No more combustion engines from 2030. In 10 years' time, we forbid them. Yeah. And that would be like the biggest Apollo project ever in, in the transport industry in the world. But we're already so close compared so close. To, to, to going to the moon at the time. I mean, that was much harder, it seems, at least. Exactly. You see, we're, we're just at that tipping point. The ban on combustion engine introduces the role of government. Is business, business innovation, is that dependent on government policy or can the changes that we need come from business regardless? Because as we know, government is not moving forward fast enough. Business and policy are, are totally intertwined. Businesses can, can provide the evidence that this makes sense in terms of creating jobs and having good economy. Yeah. But then to succeed, to get it to scale, policy must come in and set the rules. And, and particularly recognize, which is where we're failing still, that 
we are in the Anthropocene. We are the big world on a very small planet, and we must recognize that we cannot continue with 196 isolated, fragmented policies out there. We need to connect ourselves to global governance, and global governance is not global government. It is about collective action together, as we do with the World Trade Organization, as yeah. we do increasingly with financial transaction, as we do with uh, the threat of terrorism, as we must do increasingly when it comes to the transition to sustainable development. If we can understand that the planet is something that we all need to be preoccupied with every day, I think that would change things. Thank you. Thank you. a ban of the combustion engine by 2030, an exciting proposal to drive innovation by a forward-looking scientist. This was Cam Solutions. See you next time.